This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 342. In today's episode, I have a special treat for the photography students that are in my audience. I, you guys have been asking for me to get this genre covered on an episode of the show, and I'm happy to announce that today I am sitting down and having a wildlife photography chat with Richard Burnaby. Now, Richard is an internationally renowned nature, wildlife, and travel photographer. He's been published by more media outlets than I can begin to count. <laughs> and he has traveled from Africa to the Amazon to the Arctic and many, many other places in between photographing some of the most beautiful animals on our planet. So let's go ahead and bring Richard on. Hello, Richard. Thanks for joining me today. Liam, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I didn't get a chance to tell you when we were chatting right before we started the episode, but about 50, 55 percent of my audience is photography students, whether they're high school students or college students. Um, that's a good share of my audience. And they've been begging me to get somebody who is a wildlife photographer on the show. And so that's why I reached out to you. I was afraid I wasn't going to be able to connect up with you because I know you're super, super busy. Um, so I'm eternally grateful that you were able to take the time to come on the show today. So welcome. Well, I appreciate the invite and I'm looking forward to having some fun. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask you, I kind of asked this of all of my guests, how did you get started in your photography journey? Well, I'm actually started a bit late in life compared to some others, but, um, it, once I got through my twenties, I guess I rediscovered my, uh, love for the outdoors and nature. And I began doing, you know, trips, backpacking trips or fly fishing trips or, um, mountain biking. And I would take much, most people just took a camera with me to kind of record where I was going, what I was doing. And, um, I found the, the photographic process kind of interesting and curious because at that time there were these, these were filmed snapshots where you would you know go to the drugstore and get them processed and printed, and the camera wasn't recording what my eye saw, and so maybe out of twenty four prints that I would have, maybe one would look either like what I saw or maybe better than what I saw, but the other twenty three I would be I would kind of be showing my family and friends. And I said, well, this one didn't come out and this one didn't look like this much better than this. And I began to think, why, you know, why is that? Well, I thought the camera's job was just to, you pointed at something you liked and record what you saw. And I just started going down that rabbit hole of how the human eye sees, how film saw, you know, uh, visual information, how to, and uh, I, I just began to get hooked and I began going out specifically not for those other activities I mentioned, but for photography alone. And that one thing led to another, led to another, being again, writing articles for magazines since I would sell images with, you know, written text. And it became kind of a side business. And um, I got to a point where I, th I felt like I needed a change in my career. And I said, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to see if uh, in two years I can 
stand on my own two feet and support myself and uh, financially. And uh, I went at it, you know, just went at it with, with all my energy and all everything I had. And in two years, I couldn't quite, I wasn't quite in the black yet, but I was close. I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. And um, one thing led to another. And before you know it, now it's been 20, that was 20 years ago. And uh, best thing ever done. Awesome. And uh, I, you know, I go through your images all the time on your website. You have some of the most breathtaking images of wildlife I've ever seen. I mean, you are super talented at this. Um, And of course, I'll put the link to Richard's site in the show notes so that all of my listeners can check out his beautiful work. Richard also has his own extremely popular photography podcast called Beyond the Lens. And I'll make sure we have the link for that in this episode's show notes as well. So how did you get started with the wildlife aspect of your photography career? Well, like I said, I kind of started out doing like people in the outdoors, um, you know, with people backpacking or fly fishing or hiking or doing any number of things. And they were easy to sell. That was an easy uh, genre, an easy uh, commercially uh, suitable photographs that they could easily sell when I was trying to make a living. But my true love was landscape first and then wildlife without people in them. And so I, uh, for a while I, I was, uh, shooting four by five, um, you know, view camera almost exclusively just doing landscapes. And then when the digital, uh, was obvious that digital was the, the way to go. I sold all that and I bought a digital camera. This would have been about 2004, 2005. And I began to say, you know what, my, I found myself drawn to, to animals and, and well, and landscapes too. But I think in the recent years, maybe the last five to 10 it's probably been about 60 or 70% wildlife. And I just, um, I feel like they're, we're, they're, you know, without getting into, you know, too much of the conservation end of it, but I feel like, you know, our, our animals are kind of under assault in many ways, either it's loss of habitat or, um, or, or trophy hunting or any number of ways that we're losing many of these animals that uh, we used to share the planet with and we, or we don't as much anymore. And when you see, you know, lion populations plummeting 90% in the last five, uh, 50 years, cheetah populations, you know, lost 70% in the last you know, 40 years, so on and so forth that I want to record, I want to recapture them, I want to capture their, their essence, I want to capture, um, their environment to, uh, to pass on to, to people, first of all, who can't afford to go to these places to see those animals. And then, you know, who knows, maybe in 50 years, 70 years, these animals won't be around except for in, you know, controlled environments like zoos and so forth. So um, I feel there's a story there. I feel there's something I have to say. And I used my wildlife, my, my wildlife photography to say it. Absolutely. And uh, you do a fantastic job. And that's something that bothers me. And I, I don't do political stuff on the show. I try to keep it non-political, but I'm really frustrated, especially with trophy hunting. To me, that's just it's idiotic. Uh, Mm -hmm. is the way I look at when I was younger, I hunted back home in Pennsylvania, but I hunted for meat for, to feed our family. We had a very large family at the time and we weren't wealthy. So, you know, I would go deer hunting, turkey hunting, stuff like that. But, you know, some of these animals that are being trophy hunted, it, it just really ticks me off because they are such beautiful, majestic animals. They are all a, a, a major part of the world's ecosystem. And I don't like seeing their populations diminish like this, especially from these 
I guess I would call them idiotic trophy hunters. I just think that's completely well, stupid. I think it should be illegal. There's a place for hunting. And like you said, it could be for, for sustenance. It could be as a, as a legitimate wildlife management tool. And that's going on, you know, if you, if you live where you live and on the, anywhere in the East Coast of the United States, you know that the overpopulation of deer and other prey species because we don't have predators around anymore. So we need uh, hunting to to keep the numbers down for, for no, no other reason than that. Absolutely. And so it's a legitimate uh, conservation tool. It's legitimate for, for people to, to feed their families. And um, I could see the thrill in the hunt. I understand that. But there's just as much thrill in capturing an animal with uh, a telephoto lens as well. So to each their own in that, in that regard. But when it comes to trophy hunting, when it comes to people spending $80,000 to, to fly to Africa to kill animals that are already depleted, their populations are just, they're, they're basically hanging on, I'd say in 20, 30 years, we're not going to see many of these animals around anymore for the pure sport of it, for, for fun, the enjoyment of actually killing an animal for no other reason. I, I find um, it's more than problematic, but I'll, I'll save my, my language and just say it's problematic and I don't agree with it. So yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah, definitely. We're on the same sheet of music because I never understood, you know, killing elephants for their the ivory or killing a rhinoceros for its horn. I, I, I don't get that. It's like leave them alone. They have diminished populations to begin with because man is constantly expanding and developing other parts of the world that, in my opinion, should just be left alone. Again, I'm not trying to be political, but. When it comes to this, I am fairly passionate because I love wildlife. I actually was a volunteer uh, for five, six years at an organization called AWARE, which is Atlanta Wild Animal Rescue Effort. And uh, I was the webmaster and, and I did volunteer photography of the animals for them. And I absolutely loved it. I loved to get to see, you know, animals up close that you can't normally see outdoors in the wild because, you know, they're as, as afraid of you as you are of them. So it's hard to get up close to an owl or, or, a, or a mountain lion or something like that. Um, and in Pennsylvania, I do agree with you, you know, for population control, I understand totally. Um, about 20 years ago, I was moving from Pennsylvania to the Atlanta area at the time. And when it, right around the time I was moving in 2006, Pennsylvania for the first time ever opened up deer hunting on the Gettysburg National Battlefield. And it was because the white-tailed deer population was just getting ridiculously out of control. There were no predators to diminish their numbers. And, you know, they were they were breeding like bunny rabbits, so to speak. They were everywhere. Which and, which goes back to, you know, we killed up all the predators. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and it well it's funny because I remember when I was younger, the the Pennsylvania Fish and Game Commission would always tell citizens oh there's no such thing as mountain lions in pennsylvania no such thing they haven't been in this state for over 100 years so one year a local state representative who had a big farm a few miles from where i lived he actually captured a mountain lion on his farm he trapped it and then he brought in all the press all the media and the wildlife commissioner from harrisburg and he's like, oh, so there's no mountain lions in Pennsylvania? And he pulls the, the blanket off the cage and he's like, what do you call this? <laughs> mm -hmm. He's like, I caught this on my farm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's, there's a lot of, there's still debate about, you know, mountain lions in the East, except for Florida. And there are some, you know, pictures and photos. And like you said, there's some isolated 
there could be pets that were released. You know, that people buy them as, as young and they, then they let them go when they become bigger. Whether there's a breeding population, you know, sustainable population needs, I guess it's still under debate. But I'd like to see them come back. I'd like to yeah, see them here. So. Yeah, uh, I used to go to a place called Camp Berlay when I was in the Boy Scouts. We had our summer camp and we had our polar bear camp there every year. And one of the first years I was there for summer camp, I was, I think, 13. And myself and some of my friends, we took our Coleman lanterns and we went out and walked the woods around this the massive lake that was part of the property. And we we came across mountain lions. We could hear them calling. Uh, we actually spotted a couple of them up in the trees. They didn't bother us at all. They didn't try to attack us or anything. We had one of the scoutmasters with us. Uh, but uh, we shined a spotlight up into the tree and we found two or three of them up there. So they must have had a breeding population in that area. Uh, but I agree, we definitely need to see more of them. And more of all of these animals, because you know, I've watched documentaries on wildlife since I was a kid. And I've always been enthralled with all of the wildlife. There's so much diversity of life on this planet. And I don't want to see any of it diminish. And you shared a post on Twitter. And again, not trying to be political. Um, but now, for some reason, in Idaho, they're talking about slaughtering off most of the wolf population. And I'm like, why? They're not causing problems with cattle or sheep, leave them alone. Let them well, do their I, thing. They, they, there are some uh, incidents where they will, because that's easy, you know, sheep or cattle. Uh, but the government reimburses the farmer, and uh, it's very rare that it happens. But we just have to quit. You know, I, I know that we're still ingrained in us. We're hunters. That this, is, this is our DNA going back, you know, tens of thousands of years. And it's hard to get that out. And But we have to... Stop looking at our fellow, you know, I'm going <laughs> to sound new agey, but our, you know, our creatures that we share this planet with, the, instead of looking at them as enemies or, or, or as we have to just share the planet with them and it's, and we have to start looking at this where we can cohabitate. And yeah, there are going to be isolated situations where there's conflict between us or where they interrupt, like in, in the wolves in, in Montana and in, in Wyoming and in, in Idaho. I can't get those names out, where there's conflict with the ranchers, but there's so far a few between that we can learn to live you know, together on this. Yeah, exactly. I, that's my that's my feelings. Exactly. So I want to switch gears for just a minute here. I'm looking at your site and I wanted to talk about some of your your images on here, you know, where you went, how you got them. And mm -hmm. one of my very first favorites is the very first one on your page with the two elephants. That is absolutely beautiful. Can you share a little bit more about this and how you got this one? Sure. That I, I actually use that image for the little logo on my website too. It's, it's kind of been a kind of an iconic type image, but this is in uh, Atosha National Park in Namibia. And Namibia is a very dry country. It's mostly desert, like 95% desert. There's some, in the northern area that shares the border with Angola, there's some rainforest and it becomes more uh, wet and humid. But for the most part, almost all of Namibia is desert. So when you go to Atosha, you go during the dry season because uh, these animals congregate at water holes. They need water. And there's, uh, instead of going out and trying to find animals like you would have to do in East Africa and Kenya and Tanzania and some other places. All you have to do is wait at the water holes. Eventually they're going to come. And many times they come after a long, hot day, they come into the water holes right at dark and they just kind of wallow around in the water holes and drink. And so this particular water hole is right outside of a camp called Okukweyu. 
And uh, like normal, I would come just before sunset and the animals would come in and we had a bunch of uh, elephants come in, like maybe 30 or 40. And they start leaving. These two kind of hung around and um, you can see the lighting is unusual because there's the the glow from sunset in the sky. Mm -hmm. But then you also have this light coming in uh, front lit. And this is the light from the camp. So I, it was it was balanced out. The light's balanced out. The, the artificial light coming from the camp balanced out with the, the glow in the sky. So it gives it a, a different look than you would normally see um, for a lot of wildlife images. And uh, it was just catching a moment where they both were facing one another and um, they created this great symmetry. And uh, yeah, my only issue was just getting... I think I shot like 20 or 30 during this moment, you know, they were just holding that position and just getting the, the slow enough shutter speed while still getting them uh, sharp. So I didn't want to go too high and get a really noisy image with too high ISO. So I don't remember the exact settings, but I remember let's keep the sh- being that they're not moving all that much. They're really slow. The issue was, you know, just me keeping things steady and let's get this as slow shutter speed like as I can get away with keeping the ISO down. And I had maybe two or three that kind of met those conditions. And that's one of them right there. Cool. And it's funny because when I look at this image, it almost feels to me like the two elephants are talking to each other, like they're just standing there having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like to anthropomorphize the bodies. They probably were doing nothing of, of the sort, but it does yeah. kind of look like you're having a, a you know, a happy hour conversation there at the water. Yeah. Now, um, you you mentioned that there's a camp there. So you were just in the camp when you photographed this, or were you in one of the the all terrain vehicles with the camera rigs on the side and all that stuff? Or yeah, this is a camp that's fenced. So. Um, it's like the opposite of a zoo where you go to a zoo, the animals are in a fence. In this case, we're in the fence. So we have a oh, camp okay. and it's, 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 we're fenced in, we're in the middle of the park and there's, you know, all your typical, you know, lions and, uh, dangerous animals. So we're, we're fenced in and we're looking out to the, the, the park that's open. Now I'm assuming, do they have like, uh, uh, platforms, you know, so you can shoot above the fence or do you have to shoot through the fence or. Yeah, in this particular situation, um, the, the water hole is just outside the, the fence, but there's a, like a viewing area that you can set up in your tripod and you just kind of wait for animals to come in at sunset and you'll see, you know, rhinos come in, elephants come in, lions come in, uh, you know, various antelope species come in, at giraffes. And um, yeah, it's just a great place to, you know, you can be out all day in, the, in your, uh, your safari vehicle, but... I always say, let's get back to the water hole there at the, at the camp, maybe, you know, 30, 40 minutes before sunset, because sometimes that's where the best images come from. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, smartest move is to just wait by the watering hole because they're all going to come to get a drink sooner or later. Well, in this place, that, that is a strategy. Um, you know, other places you go out and you find uh, wildlife, but here you, you can either go from water hole to water hole or just kind of sit and wait at any water hole and uh, wait for the animals to come to you. Now, are the camps set up specifically for photographers or are they also used by wildlife wildlife conservationists to study the animals as well? A bit of both. Tourists, you know, you're, you're, you're tourists and you're wildlife photographers, but there's lodging, there's there's food all, in, you know, in this fenced in area. And they have several of them within the park. And so you're out there in the middle of these animals. You know, you're waking up at four in the morning. There's, you know, you hear lions roaring outside. 
and you're safely behind you know this this fence that you don't have to worry about you know them coming into your camp or into your bed or anything else yeah that would definitely be cool though to wake up to a lion roar <laughs> all right uh the next one i pulled up that i wanted to talk to you about uh because i know the students have asked about this one when they messaged me is um it's the third one across uh, once I loaded up the elephant to your slideshow and I clicked to the third one, it's the black and white of the rhinoceros. This one is absolutely beautiful. I love the way the light comes in from uh, the animal's left side and lights that side of its body and face. Now, where did, where did you get this shot? Because this is just phenomenal. I, I believe that's East Africa, probably Tanzania. And, uh, yeah, I'm doing a project on black and white images from Africa, wildlife images. So this... I particularly, when I shot it, I remember thinking, you know, the, 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 the type of lighting it is, it would work, work great for a, a black and white and possibly a, an image for this book. And uh, no, I just wanted to simplify. This is, would be called a, um, a low-key image where it's basically almost all dark, all black, and then your important details are in the light areas. And I think most of your students probably have heard of high-key images before where basically you have a white canvas and all the important details are in the dark areas. A low-key image would be the opposite where basically you have a dark canvas and all the relevant details are in the highlights. Yep, absolutely. And it is. It's a, it's a beautiful image. I love it. You got just the fantastic detail in, his, in the face and the horn on that left-hand side. It's just amazing. I mean, you can see so much detail there. Thank you. Uh, yes, fabulous. Uh, so the next one, this is another one of my favorites, is Simba, which is a young lioness in a tree at Serengeti National Park. Mm -hmm. Now, how did how did this one come about? So this is a good example of how photography lies, because the situation was nothing close to how it appears in the image. So look, what it looks like is that this um, lioness, this young lioness, is uh, eyeing me. You know, you're staring me down. Looks like he's taking that first steps toward, you know, possibly coming after me. Yeah. When uh, nothing could be further from the truth is this this young lioness was having trouble climbing trees. Lions don't normally climb trees. So this one uh, just kind of climbed up into the fork of the tree. It was very unsteady. It was kind of wobbly. It was having trouble holding on. It, it kind of stumbled and fell down a little bit a couple times, came back up, and it was just trying to balance there. Um, and it's just the way that, you know, as I'm shooting, as I'm shooting over and over and over again, one frame had that one paw forward where he's trying to balance herself. And it, we had that eye contact, which of course is uh, really important in an image like this. So we had that eye contact, that paw forward, and it looks like I'm in a dangerous situation, but, uh, actually it's complete opposite. It was, it was very, very unsteady. It was just trying to catch his balance because it kept, uh, stumbling and falling, uh, so that's another situation. I have several images where, uh, they're good examples of where photographs lie. And if I do, if I left that context or without context, people would control their own assumptions of what that photo means to them. But if you want to know the truth, it was, it was not a dangerous situation at all. I wasn't being eyed or, you know, handed down or anything like yeah, that yeah yeah you I, I imagine you probably captured this with a fairly large telephoto lens i would assume yeah it was it was, it was still fairly close yeah but. yeah ab absolutely now for this one i'm assuming you were probably on some sort of in some sort of truck or something like that 
I was in a safari vehicle for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I know, I, I think in the Serengeti, you pretty much have to be. It's the only way you're going to find the animals is if you got one of the vehicles to ride around right. and, and look for them. Right. Um, and I'm surprised when you said, because I didn't know that. I did not know enough about lions that, to know that they're not big fans of climbing trees. I just assumed all cats did. Um, because they're, uh, most they're of them not. I know do. <laughs> there's, a, there's a national park near Serengeti in the Ngorogoro called Lake Manetta, Lake Manetta, where there's a famous pride of lions that do just kind of hang in trees. I just, they, they, they prefer it. So that, that national park is known for the tree climbing lions, but for the most part, lions don't climb trees. Um, oh, wow. They have the ability, obviously, but if this uh, one lioness is indicative of the lions in general, they're not very good at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I found that interesting. And I guess it didn't really dawn on me that that lions maybe weren't as much of tree climbers as some of the other large cats, because I have seen quite a few documentaries in my time where a um, I want to say like a leopard or a cheetah would kill something. And I can't remember which species it is, but they're they're known for carrying their prey up into a tree to keep it away from the lions and the and the hyenas. I think it is from stealing their food. Yeah, that would be kill. that would be leopard. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking it was the leopards, but I wasn't one hundred percent certain. So it's interesting that even if they have a fresh kill that they drag up into the tree, the lions won't try to go up there after it. I'm really surprised by that because you know, like I said, most everybody just thinks of cats as natural tree climbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that lions aren't really big fans of that, except for that yeah. one pride. <laughs> and, and cheetahs aren't either. They 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 don't they're not big tree climbers either. Really, the leopards are the tree climbers. But there are, like you said, some isolated incidents where lions will climb trees, but they're not. They don't prefer to be up there. Yeah, they prefer to stay on the ground. Yeah. Yep. Um, and when you were talking about uh, the misleading, uh, the, the the fact that this photo lies because it looks like the lion's getting ready to pounce on you and stuff like that. I can understand that completely. Um, I'm not on scale as far as wildlife photography that you're on, but I do like to do it. And I actually captured a beautiful photograph of a lion back in 2014 that National Geographic bought to use as a cover on a textbook on one of their big cats textbooks. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a beautiful shot of a lion. There's uh, the tree limbs in the background that are out, you know, in the Boca area in the background that are all out of focus. And uh, it's a beautiful shot. But in honesty, I, you know, I didn't go to the Serengeti to get it. I got it in Zoo Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> and the crazy thing is, when I talked to the lady from National Geographic, she said, you beat out 10,000 other photographers for this <laughs> cover. And most of them actually spent the money to go to the Serengeti. But we yeah, just... But that's- that's true. So many Im- images are lies and that's just the, the nature, you know, we don't give all the context on purpose so that people can draw their own conclusions as far as, you know, what the situation was, but there's many images where I'm, sh- you know, it looks like I'm in the middle of the wilderness. I'm shooting inside the road with beer cans and telephone wires overhead and trucks going behind me. And people don't see that. You know, if I shot a video or something like that, maybe there's the context of sound and what happened before the image, what happened after the image. And I gave you a 360 view of what was around me. But a photograph can lie by leaving out all that context. And and it it looks like I'm in some, you know, beautiful 
uh, pristine national park somewhere out west, but I'm standing on the side of the road shooting. <laughs> Happens all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and I've seen online and some of the photography groups I've been, I mean, I've seen people get insane wildlife photographs that you would swear they'd be somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, no, I pulled my car off to the side of the road and got this amazing shot of an owl in mid-flight. I'm like, where? I have owls all around me. I hear them hooting and calling all night long, but I never get a chance to see them during the daytime. And I sure as heck don't get a chance to photograph them during the daytime. Um, we did have one barred owl uh, a year ago that for some reason was hunting field mice in our yard like every night, like clockwork. This owl would show up at about 9 p.m. And it would hunt in our yard all night long. And I was just loving it. I'd sit out in the, on my deck for hours watching him hunt. Uh, he'd go up into one tree and he'd watch for a while and he'd swoop down and snatch a mouse and he'd go up into another tree and he'd land on the roof of my carport and it was pretty cool. And then we went on a trip up north to visit our kids and grandkids in New York and Pennsylvania. And when we came back, he wasn't coming around anymore. I guess he got mad at me because I wasn't there to watch <laughs> him for two weeks, <laughs> but he was yeah, beautiful, so beautiful to watch him hunting, but I didn't have any lenses at the time that could capture him. And, you know, cause it was total darkness, um, other than a couple of security lights on our property. So uh, I tried with a couple of my, uh, semi-fast lenses. I didn't have anything. that was like a 1.2 or anything like that at the time for my Fuji bodies. Um, and they just didn't turn out very good. So I kept hoping he'd continue coming back once i got some faster glass and i haven't seen him since i hear him all the time but i never see him nice yeah um so the next one i want to ask you about is number 10 and this is the coastal brown bears um at cook inlet in the lake clark national park in alaska mm -hmm. totally love this because i've always loved bears yeah they're one of my favorite animals too and what i particularly like about this image is the um you know, I, I, it's the easiest thing in the world is when you're doing wildlife photography, you have, particularly if you've invested a lot in a big telephoto lens, you, you spend $8,000, $10,000 for this uh, very uh, expensive lens, is you want to reach for the longest lens you have in the bag to use it. And um, I like wildlife images that show some of the environment. Exactly. And in this case, I, I didn't. I resisted grabbing the, 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 the 500 millimeter and I went much wider this is probably about 80 millimeters to get the this is on the uh yeah on the cook inlet this is in lake clark national park and uh there these three bears are walking on the wet beach and you can see the mountains in the background and reflections in the wet sand and uh it just says so much more and has so much much more of a yeah, feeling of being in the wild when you can see some of the environment and this that's what really appeals to me about this particular image absolutely now is this a situation where again you're inside a camp or were you just out in the open but far enough away that they didn't bother you oh no these these bears don't bother you yeah i didn't these i are, didn't think they did these are grizzlies but um the the coastal variety of the cold brown bears are um fairly nonchalant when it comes to people and i've had these bears within six feet of me before and they oh, wow. um, I've met them on trails. I've met them on roads where I'm walking and turn the corner. There's one, you know, staring right at me and I would uh, back off and go into the woods and they would just walk right by without even a, a care in the world. They just have um, a different lifestyle, a different diet. They, their the attitude toward people are, are much different than if you had met the grizzly like this, you know, in Denali or Yellowstone or Glacier would be a different situation. I would never have gotten 
anywhere this close to those animals. But um, the fact that they, they're just uh, fat and happy and they've got a, a good food supply, they look at humans as a curiosity at best. And obviously, if I ran up on one and provoked one, I would pay the price for that. But if you just stay other way and many times, as I said, on this very beach where they would be walking toward me and I just stood my ground and I was shooting, you know, shooting as I got closer and closer and closer and they would walk by within six or eight feet of me and just keep on walking. Yeah, absolutely. And again, growing up in Pennsylvania, fairly common. I would encounter brown bears up there and black bears all the time. And it was never a big deal. I mean, once in a while, I, uh, especially if it was a really large black bear, it would catch me a little bit off guard and startle me a little bit. But generally, you know, like you said, I would just step off the trail into the edge of the trees and they'd saunter on by and go about their business. Uh, we did on occasion um, have them do some weird things. I remember in one town, uh, 10 miles from my hometown of Troy, Pennsylvania, over in Canton, they used to have this old bar and hotel combination called the Park Hotel. And two different times in the middle of summer, when it was extremely hot out um, and the bar didn't have air conditioning, so they were notorious for leaving the front door open, but they had a long wooden staircase to get up to the entrance from the street. And two times in 20 years, the local newspaper had a front cover photo of a black bear sauntering up those stairs and walking right into the bar in the middle of the day while people were in there drinking beer. Yep. And the bear would just walk in and look around and sniff things, and then just turn around and walk back out again. Yeah. Darndest thing. Now, we did have a couple of occasions. I had a classmate in high school. His family lived up on the side of Armenia Mountain, really, really rustic, out in the boonies. And they used to keep all of their excess meat in a large freezer that was padlocked on their back porch of their cabin. And they went away on vacation. I think they went to Florida one year. And they came back and a bear had ripped the door off the freezer and taken all the meat. <laughs> That's bears being bears. Yep, bears being bears. That's why, you know, they always tell you when you're camping, you go to bed at night, tie your food up in a tree. So if a bear comes by, <laughs> you know, they're not going to be hanging out in your camp for hours, eating all of your food and scaring the crap out of you. But for the most part, you know, they are fairly harmless animals. They're big, they're beautiful, and they generally don't bother with people with the exception of a, you know, a few species like a polar bear or a grizzly or a Kodiak um, is a more dangerous situation, I'm sure. But um, I mean, I actually had one of my friends from high school. We were at his parents' cabin on Armenia Mountain one summer, and his grandparents had a sugar shack down over the side of the mountain from where his parents' cabin was because they did maple syrup, maple candy, stuff like that. And we were going down to help out there. And we walked out the back door of the cabin. We started down through the woods. And and my friend Ralph's mom yelled at him about something. He turned around to see what she wanted. He tripped over a small brown bear that was laying across the path. And the bear got up and took off like a bullet. Yeah. For the most part, they 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 find us curious. And you know, they only become dangerous once they associate us with food. So um, you know, you want to keep food out of their way and that they avoid any kind of conversation. But most most of the time here in the East, when I encounter a black bear, it's they're running away and they're moving the opposite direction. The only times, you know, for a polar bear, forget it. You don't you don't get anywhere close to a polar bear in the wild. Um, but the grizzlies, you know, out west, the, the inland grizzlies, what you would find in Glacier, Yellowstone, or Denali, or you know, some inland areas of uh, you know uh, Alberta, uh, they can be dangerous. And they're um, I would I wouldn't get any closer than a you know hundred 
yards, 200 yards from one. And if it starts moving in the direction, then I want to move out of the way. Yeah. And um, even then, they want to avoid people. They don't want anything to do with people. The problems arise is when you're you're downwind and you surprise one. And to believe it's a sound with cubs, you, it's a it's the surprise that you have to worry about. And they will they will just eliminate you as a as a as a threat. And usually doesn't mean that they kill you, but they will do some damage to you. And then once they realize you're no longer a threat, then they move on. Um, you don't see that at the at the this, really the same bear, same DNA. It's brown bears on the coast, and you don't see that in the black bears that much. But um, it's why it's good to to wear bells or wear some kind of when I'm walking through grizzly territory by myself, I'm usually singing or talking to myself just so if there are any bears, they'll they're gonna know about your presence long bef- before you know about theirs. Yeah. The problem is if you're on a on a, a trail and you're downwind and you surprise one, that's where trouble usually comes up. Yeah, that's when it gets gets ugly. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, they don't eat people. They you know no. they basically just they'll wound you and until they no longer perceive you as a threat, and then they'll go about their day. That's all they uh, care about. Yeah, that's exactly. why you. That's why you. If you are ever in that situation, just play dead. Just don't move, and um, just you know cover up all your vital organs and you know just, just wait for it to end and hopefully you don't get injured too badly but once they realize that you're not a threat then they'll take their cubs and move on really quickly yeah i actually always wondered if that lay down and play dead thing worked with bears and i've actually seen and heard from from wildlife experts that it does um one but guy, once the once the attack is on yeah you, you want to you know if you, if you see one and it looks like it's it's been startled you want to make yourself as big as possible and you know just to help you know, you're not a threat. You're just let them move away, give them a chance to see you and recognize you. And but once they they come on you, if you have bear spray, you want to hit them right at the very last moment. Once once they're right on top of you, hit them with the bear spray. But if you don't, just just make yourself as non-threatening as possible and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, bears are definitely one of my favorite animals. Okay, so the next one, and I want to talk about some of your landscapes as well, but um, the next one I'm looking at is across the rift, and this is a larger group of elephants in Kenya. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this one right here, how you got this one. Yeah, this is uh, in Mboseli. Mboseli is quite known for its large, large elephant herds. And um, it's also known for it's, it's at the foot of Kilimanjaro. So it's right on the border of Kilimanjaro is actually in Tanzania. This park sits uh, right across the border at the foot of the mountain. So you're, you're always looking for situations where you can capture the elephants with the Kilimanjaro in the background if it's visible. Many times it's in clouds. So there's just lots of elephants. And um, I just liked the, they, they were coming our way. I was in a safari vehicle and I guess we were blocking their their. You know, the direction they're walking a bit. So they all stopped. And before we were able to you know, take off so they could continue walking in that direction, I got a couple, couple shots off. And this one has the one on the right with the trunk up. So there was good balance. There's almost like a pattern in the way that they're kind of lined up from left to right. But the one breaking the pattern on the right with the trunk kind of doing this lifting up in the air, kind of just that added, uh, you know, cherry on top that I liked and it had great clouds. It had just great atmosphere. Everything about it I liked. Yeah, I love this one. And I love how when you're looking at the the elephants in the front row, uh, the three uh, that are more on the right, you got the small one on the left, or at least it looks small. It might just be farther back. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they're in descending size as well, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's very, very awesome. <laughs> and the next one, one of my all-time favorites of yours, because they are, again, one of my favorite animals in the entire world, penguins. Mm -hmm. The one called Winter Song. You got to tell me how you got this one, because this is just so beautiful. Okay. So this is uh, one of my, I've been to Antarctica three, uh, not three times, about six or seven times now, if you lost wow. count. It's one of my first times. And these are uh, Gentoo penguins. And they do this, this is right at the time where they kind of do a lot of mating and they're, they're calling out, finding mates. And they do this song where they kind of put their heads up in the air and they make this awful sounding noise. And again, this is uh, a bit misleading because it looks like you're holding hands and singing a Christmas carol or something. But <laughs> the, it's just the angle that I'm at where they, they look like their they're little uh, flippers are touching and they're holding hands and it's very symmetrical. And they're looking up and the snowflakes are coming down, maybe even like they're looking up and catching snowflakes. Yeah. But this is something common that they do. Is they, they, they do this this. Ah, just awful sound and they're and they they what they do that they, they stick their heads way up in the air and they make this noise but there's two of them doing it at the same time and it just so happens that they're they're positioned where it looks like they're they're holding hands and singing together but uh, they're not yeah but it still makes for a fantastic image um it does it looks like either they're singing or they're trying to catch the snowflakes in their mouths catching snowflakes <laughs> yeah that's beautiful um have you ever photographed the emperor penguins I have not. Yeah. Okay. I was just wondering because they're, I know, I think they're, they're the largest species, aren't they? Yeah. The king penguins I've, I've photographed and they're uh, nearly as big, but the angler penguins are a little bit bigger, but they're only found in very remote areas of Antarctica. So you can, there are trips that will take you out to emperor penguins, but it's very expensive. You have to fly and land on the ice and you get to spend maybe a couple of days with them and you're out at the cost, you know, 40,000 to $80,000 to do that. Wow. So there are, you know, there are places where you can go fo photographing emperor penguins, but they're not the usual places where, you know, along the coast where you, you see the, the gen twos and the chin straps and the king penguins and they're much more remote areas. Um, but, yeah, I agree. They're, they're, they look a lot like the kings. So the king penguins have that orange, you know, markings on their face, and they're just as beautiful and um, almost as big, almost the same size. And you find those more toward like South Georgia and the Falklands. Oh, OK. And for my listeners, when he says South Georgia, he's not talking about in the U.S. <laughs> no, South, South Georgia Island. Uh, it's a it's an island in the, the way isolated in the, in the southern Atlantic. And it's it's um, uninhabited. There's some research stations for the most part. That's it. And it's uh, you have these huge uh, rookeries of penguins, you know, hundreds of thousands of king penguins. And it's very, very dramatic landscape with these jagged uh, snow-capped mountains. And uh, if you've read about, you know, Shackleton's journey, there's a lot of uh, stories about South Georgia. But it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to and one of the more remote places in the world. Yeah, I've seen some I've seen the, the penguins in that area featured in some documentaries on National Geographic Channel, I think. And uh, just looking at it, you know, when they were there filming, I'm like, man, that's got to be a hard place to get to. It can't. It be is. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy. And the penguin population, like you said, is just massive. It's like a sea of penguins. <laughs> yeah, they're just everywhere, which is really cool because they're a beautiful bird. I've always loved penguins. 
Um, so let's get on to some of your landscapes. And the first one that I really love is the one titled Swept Away. And I'm assuming this is a long exposure photograph of sorts. Correct. Yep. So this this is a um, an area of Iceland, southern Iceland, where uh, it's very, very, very popular with photographers and very popular with anyone who goes to Iceland. They, they tend to go down the southern coast. And you get you you get to a, a glacier, or a glacier one of the biggest glaciers in Europe. It actually, is the biggest glacier in Europe. It's called Jokulsárlón. Is the bay that it kind of feeds into. So the I'll go my uh, Iceland terms out here. Vatnajökull is the glacier. It's the largest glacier in Europe, and there's an area where the glacier comes right up to the where the ocean is, and it created this little bay called Jokulsárlón. And so when the when the parts of the glacier calve. And they go into the bay and they kind of float in this little local star line. But since it's tidal, every time there's a high, low tide, it pulls these icebergs out to sea and then they get washed up on this beach. And this beach, this will happen to be a volcanic beach. So the sand is black. So it's very striking when you have these crystalline pieces of ice and some of the blue ice and they're just littered along the section of the beach. So what I, what you see here is I found this is piece of ice had a really unique shape to it almost looks like kind of a bird yeah with its wings out in the head and uh so then i would wait what i would do is i said i find an iceberg like this that were right in the area where the tide was coming in and out and i would set my tripod up and wait for the tide to come the, the waves to come in and then just as they're starting to recede i would shoot maybe a second or two second exposure and i would get the water as it's going around the, the, the little piece of ice but I also get, because I have uh, boots on and, and I have my tripod just really anchored into the sand really well, I would also leave these foam trails from my feet and the tripod legs too. So what you have is you've got all these converging lines leading out toward the water and the sky, and um, that's what you see here. It's just kind of centered the composition, so I allowed all those lines to kind of converge uh, out toward the vanishing point. Yeah, and it makes for an awesome image. I just, I totally love that. I've always wanted to go to Iceland. Actually, I'd like to go to Iceland and Greenland both. I don't know if I'll ever get to either one, but <laughs> well, I would definitely love to go to both places with my camera. I, I've been to Iceland 23 times. Holy cow. <laughs> and it's it's a lot easier to get to than you think. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's become very popular, not only with people in North America, but Europe as well, because it's right there in the in between them. And if you're on the east coast of the U.S., a flight to Iceland is a sh actually a shorter flight than going out to L.A. Oh, wow. So it's, a, it's easy to get to. It's a you know, well-developed European country, so you can rent a car. The roads are good. At least the roads that are called the ring road that goes around the perimeter. Going into the highlands, then you need something a little more rugged and more robust. But you can travel on your own. There's, there's good restaurants. There's good uh, – it's it's quite easier than most people think. And the weather is not as bad as people think either. Wow. Well, yeah, because Greenland's actually the one that has the worst weather, right? The, yeah, there's the old joke about, you know, Greenland is all ice and Iceland is all green. Most, yeah. For the most part. And it was done by the Vikings to kind of trick people like, hey, we really like this Iceland thing. Let's tell everybody it's, let's call it Iceland. So everybody goes to Greenland instead. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's a beautiful country, and it has it's just a lot of natural beauty. Um, if you like landscapes, particularly there's there's like thirty thousand waterfalls in the country. The, the size of the uh, of the state of South Carolina, by the way, not not very big. Thirty thousand waterfalls, volcanoes, uh, glaciers, 
Um, it's uh, beautiful coastlines, you know, rugged coastlines with, uh, you know, sea stacks and cliffs. And it's just a really beautiful country. Oh, I can imagine. I definitely got to get, that would be a place that I'd go to that I'd have to stay for quite a while because <laughs> I, I love waterfalls. It's a five hour flight from New York to Reykjavik. Wow. That's which crazy. is about the same as flying from New York to LA. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's crazy. I didn't realize you could get there that quickly and easily. Yeah. Wow. A lot of, a lot of flights too. Yeah. All right. So the next landscape one that I wanted to talk to you about, um, let's see, it's number five in your slideshow. It's the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, the Kurnios at Sunset and the Payne River in Chile. Yeah. Kurnios. Kurnios. I was afraid I'd pronounce it wrong. Um, But this one looks like it's another long exposure that you did that's absolutely beautiful, especially with the peaks, the rocks in the background. The Quirinos means horns. So what, what wow. you see there in, in Torres del Paine, there's there's two areas that most photographers um, kind of concentrate on. Um, there's the Quirinos area here that you see here, and then there's the, the, the actual Torres, which are towers. And from this angle, this is the Paine River, and there's a little cascade. And you have to go out into the river. It's a very big tough river you have to walk out on this rock in a very precarious spot to kind of line the the uh the cascade here with the the two cornos there the two horns and right at sunrise and this is an old old image this is going back probably 2010 maybe 2009 oh wow and yeah and because of the way uh the landscape sits you have the mountains here, which you're looking, obviously at sunrise, so you're looking west. So the mountains kind of create some weather. It's always some clouds kind of hanging around these mountains. And right behind it, basically, not far from it, is the Pacific Ocean. So a lot of weather is coming in from the Pacific Ocean, uh, warmer, humid air and the mountains. And behind me toward the east is is called the Patagonian Steppe, very dry, almost a desert uh, kind of environment. So you'd always, even if you woke up and there's a lot of clouds, out toward the east where the step was, there'd always be a bit of an opening to let the sun come up and then you would get these tremendous colors and light when once you hit the mountains and all the clouds that are being generated from the mountains and the glacier and the, the Patagonian ice field and the Pacific Ocean. Every morning, whether this is Chiltan in Argentina or here in Chile, uh, some of the most spectacular sunrises. And this is just one of many that I've had while shooting down there. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... That's definitely an awesome shot. Didn't realize it was one of your older ones, but it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm surprised it's still on my website because of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so another one of my favorite landscapes of yours is called Winter Tide, and it's the Canyonlands National Park in Utah. Mm, this one, yeah. the tree in the foreground is. Oh, I just love this. This is fantastic. Yeah, this is in Canyonlands, and um, I'll give it away. It's a Green River Green River Overlook, which is pretty popular for people who go to Canyonlands. It's in the uh, Island in the Sky District. And there's this uh, tree that looks kind of like a like a candelabra in a way. And it's been photographed before, but not, I haven't been there when the snow was just kind of hanging on the limbs and there's some snow in the background. And because it's a relatively high elevation, if you go in March, I think it's probably in March, still a lot of snow on the ground. And, uh, just uh, right place, right time kind of thing. But I've always shot that tree. I always wanted, you know, uh, to have a you know, kind of snow hanging on it. And once I saw that we had snow in the, in the forecast and there was some snow, chance of snow, I went right to that tree. 
Yeah, and you got there just the right time too, because the the snow on the limbs is what really makes. That's what makes it. Yeah, it makes a pop. I mean, it makes it really beautiful. And it's funny too that you said what you said because the first time I saw this one, I thought it almost looks like a a, a candelabra in nature. Right, it does. <laughs> it's totally cool. All right, so um, one of the other things I wanted to have you talk about a little bit is for the students, especially that are listening, um, that are interested in getting into wildlife photography. How would you recommend they get started? Now, I I tell them when they email me or or message me on social media that the, probably their easiest starting point is going to be to look for wildlife in their own home area at first because, you know, they're students. They're not going to be able to afford to fly to Antarctica and stuff like that right away. Um, so I wanted to get your your recommendations for those listening that want to get a start in wildlife photography, how they should go about it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's good advice. And you could, you could there's there's wildlife pretty much everywhere, even in urban areas, there's wildlife. Yep. And and just kind of hone your craft there. And you don't have to start with a with a very, very expensive lens. I mean, particularly now with the way that sensors uh, are made so well that you don't need a particularly fast lens like you would in the past. Not to mention that you have processing techniques you cannot blur the background you don't have to have that 2.8 lens you can do a you know a 100 to 4 actually it's a really good lens is 100 to 400 or a canon 100 to 500 it's a lot of flexibility image quality is good you pick up you know for maybe an older model for a thousand dollars a newer one for two thousand dollars which um maybe still a lot of money for some people but um it's a, if you're going to invest in and becoming a wildlife photographer, that's a good start. And you can handhold it, you can put it on a tripod and uh, just just hone your techniques and home, you know, um, you know, different, you know, zooming in to capture, you know, the face and close-ups and then start looking for wider perspectives that kind of bring in other elements, not only to help tell the story about its environment and where it lives, but you can actually bring in other compositional elements by going wider too. So it's just not like a dumb animal looking into the camera and start at home. That's what, that's how you have to start and get, get all the technical stuff down because even though in some regards, I think wildlife is easier in some ways, I think probably landscapes actually harder. I think wildlife is easier in some ways, but then you bring into a lot of technical expertise that you have to uh, master before you kind of move on and start traveling uh, out West to Yellowstone or Alaska or Africa and Antarctica. So you can easily do that by squirrels in your backyard or birds in your bird feeder or uh, go to your park and, um, or a zoo. That's another place you can kind of practice as well. Yeah, that's how I did it. <laughs> Going to zoos. Uh, I went to Zoo Atlanta when I lived in Georgia for almost 20 years. And I also frequented, um, uh, what was it called? Wild Animal Safari. I think it was in like Pine Mountain, Georgia. It was a couple hours away from Atlanta. But you mm -hmm. could actually, when you go there, you could actually rent uh, one of their vehicles that have the bars over the um, over the windows and stuff like that. And you can actually, you rent one of their vehicles for like 25 bucks and you drive through the park and, and you could shoot between the bars with your camera and you can get fairly close to, you know, giraffes and and lions and they have all kinds of animals like that down there so i did some of that there but i've had i've told some of the students i'm like well you know you have white-tailed deer in your area right yeah 
I'm like, okay, we'll start with them. Um, get yourself or, bird, or set up a bird feeder. Yeah, exactly. And a blind a in your backyard. Yep. I love to shoot hummingbirds, cardinals, blue jays. I love those guys. Um, but I told one student, I said, it can be as simple as starting with uh, your bird feeder and white-tailed deer because you live where I know you have a lot of white-tailed deer. And uh, I said, if nothing else, get yourself uh, a decent but fairly inexpensive, you know, freestanding deer blind and just stand inside that. It's got a little slot that you can stick your lens out through and then you're not disturbing the animals. You can kind of go into the blind and wait for them. And, yep. you know, after you've been there for a little while, things have settled down as far as noise in the area and all that stuff, they're going to come out eventually. And there you have it. I'm like, you got a, a great little camouflage blind that you're tucked away in and you can stick your lens out through the little opening and, and photograph to your heart's content. Absolutely. Yep. Now I got to ask you, and I tell my students all the time that this, realistically doesn't matter because all systems are really good these days but just to to uh share with my students what do you currently shoot with what system are you using canon i'm currently using canon and i have uh, when i travel to canon r5 bodies um and i normally on a typical trip i'll take a 15 to 35 a 24 to 105 and then a 100 to 500 would be like a typical kit for for example, I'm going to uh, Borneo in three weeks to photograph orangutans. Oh, okay. I'm going to bring 15 to 35, 24 to 105, a 7200 2.8 because it's a uh, rainforest and the canopy is very dark and you don't need a lot of reach because these are rather big animals. And I'll bring a 100 to 500 just in case I need to do some closer uh, work. I'm going to leave the big lenses back here because I don't feel like walking around carrying somebody walking through the jungle. and Yeah. Um, but um, that's really my kit. That's what I would take, um, uh, I'd say 80% of my wildlife trips. I'll just take that. If I'm going to Alaska or Africa, I will take a, I have a Canon, it's an EF lens, a 200-400 uh, F4 throughout the range. So it's rather big. It's about yeah. the same size as a 500 F4. And um, it's got a... a a switch on it that will engage a 1.4 teleconverter built into the lens. So I have 200 to 560, uh, 560 would be 5.6, all in one lens. And it's sharp, tack sharp from front to back. I just use the adapter because the R5 is uh, mirrorless and it uses the R5, um, the uh, RF mount. I'll, that's my favorite for Alaska or or um, Africa, particularly Africa, where you're you're in a vehicle, you can't zoom with your feet. I like having a zoom lens. Um, and then I have a 600 f4 that I use for just smaller birds or something like that, where I need to really need the extra reach. But the 200 to 400 is my favorite, my favorite lens. Yeah, that's a, that's a workhorse of a lens, and it's popular with a lot of photographers. That's yeah. definitely one of Canon's best lenses. Uh, no doubt about it. I was actually shooting Canon mirrorless myself. I switched from DSLR to mirrorless. I shot, uh, when I was younger, I shot a lot of motorsports, NASCAR, IMSA, stuff like that, and used the 1D bodies and the huge lenses. And, you know, they weren't my lenses. They were, you know, they belonged to the companies I shot for. But mm -hmm. all those years, uh, 30 plus years of lugging that big, heavy gear around, and my arms really took a beating. And my doctor told me a year before last, he's like, either got to give up photography or go to a smaller system. So I switched everything out for Fujifilm, which I've always loved Fujifilm as well. They have really good color science. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, t with the three lenses you're talking about with the R5, I mean, you got everything you need. That covers 
a wide range. And I never got a chance when I was shooting RF to one, use the 100 to 500, but I've heard from a lot of people that even though it's uh, on the long end, it's a 7.1 aperture, that it's still, you can get just phenomenal I images with that with one of the R bodies. It is. It's it's very sharp. And no, I, I would prefer to. The problem is that if you if it's faster, yeah. say with the five, it would be bigger. Of course. Yeah. But it's it's um it's a perfect lens when I go to Antarctica, for example, because most of the shooting you're doing is from the boat and you're hand holding. Even when you go ashore, you can't bring tripods. So you're yep. doing hand holding. It's got good reach. I do landscapes with it from the boat. I'm doing a little wildlife from the boat, shooting, you know, whether it be whales or seals or when I get out to the shore, I'm shooting penguins. I mean, I can walk around for, you know, for hours with that and not have to worry about it breaking your back. Like you said, the, um, would I prefer to be a little faster than 7.1 on the long end? Yes. But then you would, the trade off is that it would have to be physically bigger. So the way the sensors work these days <laughs> and more expensive. So, um, the way the sensors work these days, as far as, you know, that you want that speed. So you have, you have lower ISO, but you know, 6,400 ISO is nothing on the R5. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Most of the good mirrorless cameras can do 6,400 like it's nothing nowadays. Right. So um, I have no problem with the 100 to 500. Now, if I'm going to be in a, in a situation where I don't have to carry it, like I'm in Africa and I'm in the safari vehicle and I'm using, a, you know, a beanbag to kind of support it on the, then it, then I'll take the bigger lens because I can, I can don't have to worry about carrying it around all the time. And it's uh, a little bit faster. Yeah, absolutely. All right. One last image I have to ask you about from mm -hmm. your site. And this one's called Turning Away. And it's the tail of a humpback whale. Yeah. This yeah. one. Oh, I, I, I love whales. Another one of my favorite animals, especially the humpbacks. This is uh, from a, a like a Zodiac boat in Greenland. Oh, wow. And uh, it's a humpback whale. And uh, there's humpbacks at this time of year, like August. It's The whales are everywhere. And what I like about it is just, you know, obviously the symmetry of the image, but you see the ice, big iceberg right between, yep. in the, in the, in between the, the tail. And, uh, yeah, sometimes you don't have to show the whole animal to kind of convey what you want to convey with animals and with the wildlife. So sometimes just a part of an animal, um, I have somewhere you just, you know, you see the eye, you know, peeking behind the tree or just, just a tail. It tells a story. And that's all you need. Yeah, absolutely. And this one's great. I love it. Um, especially with a large whale. A tail shot is frequently all you need. Uh, and it's hard to get good shots of the entire of the entire mammal, anyways. But uh, unless they're you know breaching. Yeah. But exactly. this one, you see you see an iceberg behind it, and then behind that you could see a wall of white. I yep. hope you can see it, which is the the uh, ice cap, the the main ice cap of uh, Greenland. And I've, I've flown over it with a helicopter and it just goes on for you know, hundreds of miles, just ice. And that's the edge of it right there. Wow. Yeah. One of my friends was just over in Greenland a year or so ago. She was filming a, a show for the Weather Channel. They were a bunch of Americans were over there uh, searching for gold, panning for gold. And uh, she said she absolutely loved it over there. She said it did get bitter cold. <laughs> they, they were there in what was called Greenland summer. But I think she said the high, the warmest it ever got was like 45, 50 degrees, maybe. That's, that's Greenland. <laughs> See, unlike, unlike Iceland, Iceland gets the warmth from the, uh, the Gulf Stream. So Iceland is actually fairly warm. And it, I, I used to go to Iceland in the summer, in the, uh, in the winter, like in January and December. People would expect it to be really cold, but it usually be about freezing. 
it'd be raining or maybe a little snow. But, I, but Greenland is too far west. It doesn't get any of that influence, that weather influence from the Gulf Stream. So it's bitter cold. Yeah. Bitter cold. Yeah. Brutal. Brutal cold. Yes. All right. Um, well, we've we hit about an hour, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. Usually the interviews at about an hour is really good. My my listeners love that. Um, you've, again, got some amazing images. Now, I got to ask you, your next trip that you talked about, you have coming up in three weeks. Is that a shoot for a client? Is that for a National Geographic or somebody? or? Um, no, it's just a personal trip. Oh, I, cool. I've not, I've not been, I've been to Indonesia, but I didn't go to Borneo, uh, to photograph the orangutans and orangutans. It's, it's another conservation issue where they're just losing habitat deforestation. Yeah. Uh, probably not going to be with us for another, you know, 50, 60 years. I mean, I have any wild orangutans. So I want to get down there to photograph them myself. So I've contacted some people I know I've got my personal guide, the personal boat, and I was spending a, a week shooting in Borneo. Awesome. That's going to be so cool. I can't wait to see those images. <laughs> I'm sure you'll be sharing some of them on Twitter. I'll share a few. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Well, Richard, I want to thank you once again for being kind enough to spend some of your time with me today for the students to listen to this and uh, get some of the information on how you got some of these amazing images and how they could, you know, start out, especially as, as students in wildlife photography, because I know I have a few of them that hit me up that are interested in it. Great. And, you know, I tell them all the time, stick with what you have close by, you know, bird feeders, white-tailed deer, skunks, squirrels, whatever. Um, just be creative with it. And uh, definitely with the new mirrorless cameras, you don't have to have the fastest, most expensive glass because, like you said, we can push the ISO higher without getting a ton of noise and the images will still be fairly sharp and crisp. And so you can get great results without having to spend a ton of money when you first get started in it. And, right. you know, then down the road, you get to the point where you're getting paid to do it. Then, yeah, you can splurge on some of the nicer gear. Um, right. R5s aren't super expensive, but they are phenomenal cameras. Uh, there's rumor that Canon might be releasing an R5 Mark II this year. Um, I don't know for sure yet if they are or not. I'm pretty good at, at sussing out what Canon's going to do because I shot with their gear for so long. Like when they first, uh, late 2018, when they first announced the R and then later the RP, I knew right off the bat they were going to be bridge cameras. It was just Canon sticking their toes in the water while they developed better stuff. And I remember I told a lot of people at, at camera trade show, photography trade shows and stuff like that i'm like give them 18 to 24 months and they'll have bodies that are as good as sony's and everybody laughed at me and told me i was crazy and then bam 18 months later they dropped the r5 and the r6 and they were fabulous cameras you know, but Canon's a big company. They have a lot of resources exactly. for R&D. Uh, uh, Sony obviously got uh, the head start in the mirrorless uh, game, but expect Canon to be there. They have they have too many resources that they're uh, that they're ready to to put into that uh, camera system. And uh, the RF was a big jump. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right direction. And that's that's the other thing I I tell students all the time. I said you got to realize out of all the camera companies, Canon and Sony have the deepest pockets for research and development. Yep. Because they have so many other divisions of technology that make the majority of their money. Um, you know, Canon's got all their medical imaging technology, MRIs and CT scan machines and all that stuff. And uh that's part of what Hinders Nikon. They're they've been around a long time. They're a good company. They make great cameras, but they just don't have as deep a pockets as Canon and Sony do. So, 
I wasn't surprised when they dropped to third place, you know, in, in, uh, in camera market as far as market share and all of that. I wasn't surprised at all when Sony passed them. Right. Uh, just because Canon and Sony have the deeper pockets, they can spend the money on research and development where Nikon can't as much. They have Nikon has mostly like spotting scopes and binoculars and optics for telescopes and stuff like that. So much harder for them to compete True. with the limited funding. Um, I think uh, that Canon might not only announce the R5 Mark II soon because they already did the R6. And when they did the R, original R5 and 6, they released them at the same time. But I have a feeling Canon is going to very soon finally announce the mirrorless replacement for the 5D and 5DS or 5DS and SR. I had the SR at one time, fantastic landscape camera. Uh, but I have a feeling they're going to release a high megapixel version of the R5 to replace the S and the SR from the DSLR days because they've already said they're going to do it. They've already they said a couple of years ago there's going to be no more of the 5S and SR. In the DSLR market, we're going to convert them to mirrorless, and we'll be releasing a mirrorless replacement for both bodies in the near future. So I have a feeling that's going to happen this year. Probably. Yeah. Now, that one, depending on what kind of sensor they put in it, that could be an insane camera, especially for landscapes and probably for wildlife, too, because there's rumors that they may throw as large as a 100-megapixel sensor in it. Because I know Canon already has developed... They've developed a 100 megapixel sensor. They got a 125 and they also have a 250 that they're using in other technologies like security cameras with face recognition and all that. And it's only a matter of time before they start using those sensors in camera bodies, I have a feeling. Yeah, there's still the R1 that's, that's yeah, exactly. somewhere over the horizon. They may be saving that for the, the flagship. They don't have a flagship yet. A flagship yeah, exactly. Camera. Yeah. So that well, may be saving that for the flagship uh, R1, which is rumored also. Well, that the, that's the one thing I debate on, though, because a lot of people speculate that the R1 is going to get the huge sensor. And I'm like, no, Canon, that's not how Canon does things. Their flagship bodies have always had fewer megapixels, but they were built like tanks to be used out in the worst possible conditions all day long, but they never had the largest megapixel sensor. I mean, the 1D bodies for years were always 20 megapixels and that was it. Yeah. Um, so I highly doubt they're gonna throw a 100 megapixel sensor in the R1 just to one-up Canon and Nikon, or Sony and Nikon's larger sensors and their flagship bodies. I just don't think Canon's gonna do that. I think they're gonna put the big megapixel sensor in that 5DS slash SR replacement body. And I think the R1, they might push the R1 as high as 36 megapixels, but I don't think they're gonna go much higher than that. Um, just because that's what they've always stuck with. They've always stuck with lower megapixel in their flagship sports body. That's just how they've always done things. Yeah. Yep. I guess we'll see soon. Yep. We'll have to wait and see for sure. All right. Well, again, Richard, thank you so much for your time, for being kind enough to share some of your time with me and my listeners. We do greatly appreciate it. Now I've uh, finally had somebody to cover the wildlife genre as well as landscape. So that's highly appreciated. And you're welcome to come back anytime you'd like, sir. Well, I'll be here if you need me. All right. You take care. Enjoyed it. You have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Well, there you go. That wraps up episode 342 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank Richard Burnaby once again for joining me on today's episode. 
Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, again, that wraps up episode 342 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also, remember to check out Richard's podcast. He has a super popular photography podcast called Beyond the Lens. You'll find the link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as his wonderful website where he has those absolutely stunning images that we talked about in this episode along with many many more i highly encourage you to stop by his website check out his beautiful images maybe buy a print for yourself um, uh, he's got prints for sale i'm sure uh, it looked like he did on the website that you could order some of them as prints so highly recommend you uh check out his work and maybe buy something uh, that you really catches your eye that you really enjoy he also has the creative vision newsletter that you can sign up for as well so a lot of stuff going on there highly encourage you to check out everything all of his socials will be in the show notes as well so you can follow him on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin and as he said he'll be going out in about three weeks and photographing the orangutans uh that's going to be awesome i can't wait until he posts those images on twitter because i'm sure they're going to be awesome <laughs> i'd definitely be looking forward to those uh also remember to stop by the liam photography youtube channel subscribe to the channel watch the videos like them share them comment out on them share them out on social media and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops and i will see you all again on sunday